Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about the splits between AM and FM, hard rock and soft rock, and John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming back Ed Ward, the author of The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 7, Long Live Rock, which opens up with a discussion about the big Beatles versus The Stones debate. Tell us about that set. Well, what I eventually figured out was the Beatles versus Stones thing was the same as the folkies commercial versus um, authentic argument. In other words, it's mostly not not an argument. I mean, these, these things have always coexisted and um, continue to do so. The thing is that the, the difference was the Beatles increasingly became a, a band that could only function in the studio. Around the time of Revolver, they got to the point where they couldn't play that stuff live. So they just made records and didn't tour. Whereas the Stones um, were more authentic kind of guys, and um, they played music that could be reproduced live and continue to do so. And also, if like if you listen to say uh, the Stones got live, if you wanted album on a track like Under My Thumb, which involved marimbas and multiple layers of acoustic guitars and an extra fuzz bass, they just covered it like they were a high school garage band and just didn't deal with any of that crap. They were not paralyzed by you know, oh my, we've got to have that extra keyboard part or anything. They just like we're we're a garage rock band. We're going to blow it up. So yeah, I mean, and, and this is why because the stones were copyable by other bands, why there was this divide. And they also were playing three chord songs and didn't have all those fancy Beatles chords that got uh, Glenn Matlock fired from the Sex Pistols later on. But <laughs> it, it's it's also there's a, a class divide here. I mean, you know, the Beatles are are working class, the Stones are middle class, but. As performers, they kind of flip-flopped, and the Beatles had more of an upper-class, upper-middle-class audience, and the Stones were more a band of the people. Well, it's, the, the real divide is between pop and rock. Pop has always existed, and you can't make the charts unless you're popular, and, and there's a, a concession to the idea of, of manufactured music. You know, which is what the Beatles became. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a different thing. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, the the Stones are are easy to listen to a song and learn it with your band and and try to play it live. But there's always been this kind of snobbery against pop music because it isn't something that's easily done. And so, therefore, the authentic guys, you know, the the rock guys, 
they disdain it. Whereas, you know, if you're just playing rock music and it's it's not the kind of thing that people want to hear again, it's not popular music. Although sometimes it can be popular, but it's not quite the mainstream. But there's a lot of divides in this period we're talking about. It's not just pop versus rock or Beatles versus Stones. There's also the whole AM versus FM and singles versus albums divide. Right, exactly. That's because there is a new format whereby a seven, eight, nine minute song, a song that takes a whole side of an, a 20 minute side of an album becomes something that is viable for uh, consumption outside the home. You know, you can hear this stuff on the radio and uh, it's somehow considered more important or more interesting by the people who um, who don't actually play music. <laughs> and who smoke a lot of reefer, I think, was a correlating factor as well. Is what? Smoking a lot of pot, I think, contributed as well. To yeah. The enjoyment yeah. of long, slow jams and complicated song introductions and elaborate outros and the whole bit. Well, there's a, uh, there was a, a bunch of people who wanted to believe that rock was art. And um, they went about it the wrong way. Instead of making their own art, they used the art of the past to try to legitimize the uh, music that they were making. And, you know, that just doesn't work. Although it did sell a lot of concert tickets and albums for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But we'll get to the prog rockers in a bit. I, I want to I talk about what the Beatles are up to in the aftermath of their breakup. We've got John Lennon and George Harrison bringing in Phil Spector to replace George Martin and producing a string of, especially for George Harrison, very commercially successful singles and albums. And John Lennon has a pretty up and down track commercially and artistically. It's more of a downgrade. He starts out great and and kind of slides. Right. Uh, Lennon Lennon was in trouble. He he uh, was facing a lawsuit from Morris Levy for um, using uh, material from Chuck Berry in his song, Come Together. And uh, as a result, he lost the, he lost the lawsuit and had to record an album for Levy. And, and so he dashed off something called Rock and Roll, which was an album of cover tunes from his you know childhood. And um, that kind of impeded his forward progress, whereas George and Paul didn't have that kind of uh, thing to worry about. Yeah, and George in particular just explodes with songs that he, that songs that have been rejected by the Beatles and and puts them into a triple album, the first triple album to definitely the first triple album to ever hit number one, and possibly the first triple album ever released. Although one album is as a one of the LPs is a jam collection, but it's a double album of great songs with elaborate Phil Spector production, and he and he. Throws in the whole kitchen sink. They've got the whole, the full Spectre treatment. Two drums, you know, and three, four acoustic guitars on every track. It's just a big, big echoey Phil Spectre sound. It's not the first triple album, though. Uh, that would have been Woodstock soundtrack. Ah, good catch, good catch. And meanwhile, Paul and Ringo are going down very different paths. 
Yeah, Paul is is now freed to write pure pop music, you know, things like silly love songs and, and uh, songs like that, which is really where he's always wanted to be, where he was maybe the pop influence on John when Lennon McCartney was a going concern. Perhaps, although, really? you, you know, John wrote seven out of ten songs on a hard day's night, so certainly Lennon was a master of the pop form. Yeah, but, but it was... Um, was McCartney's influence and pushed him in that direction some of the time. Yeah, and without John to edit out things and say, no, we're not going to do that, Paul kind of ran wild. I also have always wondered if the whole Paul is dead thing, uh, you know, which was this enormous conspiracy theory started on underground radio in the States that culminated in Paul having to come out of seclusion to say, I'm not dead. But he never was quite the same. I mean, you know, this is the guy who did Sgt. Pepper's and Abbey Road and was very ambitious artistically. And, and in the 70s, he's doing things like, you know, Mary had a little lamb. Yeah. Um, actually, they all soon lost the plot uh, around then. And, and as a result, none of their records really sold that much. The only reason that George's triple album hit the top of the charts was because the top of the charts is measured as much by the amount of money an album brings in uh, as as it is the um, the number of sales. So therefore, a record that's priced at three times the, the price of a single album is going to automatically chart higher than um, than a single single LP. But he did organize the concert from Bangladesh, which brought Bob Dylan out of seclusion, brought Eric Clapton out of seclusion, and was a huge success. And for a while, George Harrison seemingly had taken on the mantle of the Beatles as far as the leader of the youth movement. Yeah, I guess. I mean, although his impact on the culture generally was diminished, partially because his you know, his views were odd. He was championing Hare Krishna, which most Hindus deride. And um, he also, you know, he was a militant vegetarian and all this stuff. He was a little too odd to be mainstream. Yeah, and it always sort of had a sanctimonious tone about him. But let's hear a little snippet of George Harrison with Eric Clapton at the Bangladesh concert doing While My Guitar Gently Weeps, a track that Clapton had played on in the original Beatles version on the White Album. George Harrison live at the concert for Bangladesh in New York, a concert he had hoped to reunite the Beatles for, but he couldn't get Paul and John to cooperate, although Ringo was there, faithful Ringo. And Bob Dylan came out and it was a huge success. I mean, they turned away Crosby, Stills, and Nash, so it was a very big deal. But this Eric Clapton, George Harrison connection with people like Leon Russell and Phil Spector, it's sort of this merging of 
the U.S. studio assembly line structure and the Phil Spector rock orchestra structure with the British rock scene. And and Clapton actually goes out on tour, and even George joins it briefly with a, with a group called Delaney and Bonnie. Yeah, and um, at that point, a lot of the previous generation's big stars were looking back when they were just guys in a band. And I mean, I remember Clapton saying that as a, a sideman on the Delaney and Bonnie tour, you know, I just want to be a guitar player. And and certainly a big break from the overblown hype of Bad Faith, which was a band he put together with Steve Winwood and, and um, Ginger Baker after the collapse of Cream. And they hit the road packing stadiums when they hadn't even rehearsed a full set. So he'd, he'd lived through this incredible hype and pressure and wanted to get away from it all. But he ends up kind of stealing Delaney's band and putting together a low-key combo called Derek and the Dominoes, recruits Dwayne Allman to come in for the session in just a serendipitous move. And we'll talk about the Allman Brothers in a minute, but puts together a double album of his own, Layla, that is a slow burn. It takes almost a year to hit the charts in a big way. The thing about the Derek and the Dominoes album is it wasn't it wasn't geared for pop consumption the 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 obvious single there was layla the, the title track but it was way too long for a single for a 45 and that's what drives the charts is 45s so um although the record was selling it wasn't selling in huge quantities or, or it was probably selling enough to um, use the dollar metric to ascend the charts. But it was the only place you could hear it on the radio was on FM radio. And so um, Eric Clapton disappeared from the pop listeners consciousness. Although the uh, people who listened to FM radio and could handle long tracks and so forth they got to hear it and in a similar way to to michael bloomfield who we talked about on past episodes clapton and bloomfield both sort of retreat from the scene and and descend into heroin addiction and and get real both of them get real quiet for a long time yeah and Clapton's on Atlantic. The, the, I wanted to mention that the Beatles had spun off onto Apple Records, which was really still Capital and EMI, but they had their own label. And the Rolling Stones do something similar. And Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic is just out there signing up everybody. He's already hit big with Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills & Nash, Iron Butterfly, and he gets the Stones at the cost of giving them their own label, Rolling Stones Records. What do they do with that? Not much. They uh, They recorded... A couple of albums. Um, I think Wyman has, has an album on Rolling Stones. They released a jam record with uh, Nicky Hopkins, the piano player. Um, really, Rolling Stones records was for the Rolling Stones albums. Um, what it did was it got them better distribution and it realigned their um, royalty structure. But uh, you know, the average consumer didn't know about that. And and they are, are having heroin struggles of their own. Keith Richards is sort of taking the Brian Jones role as the the band fuck up and missing sessions. And fortunately, Mick Taylor is able to step up and Mick Jagger and Keith is in and out and produces some great work in between 
just missing sessions. And so they put out Sticky Fingers next on Main Street. But by the time of Go Ted Soup, both Keith and producer Jimmy Miller are well gone on the heroin train. Yeah, and uh, also uh, Exile on Mainstream got them in a lot of trouble. They were living in France to get away from some of the more onerous um, tax laws of the United Kingdom, and um, they were attracting way too much attention by their drug use and and some of their public antics in France, and uh, so that, that got them in trouble with the law. And inspired future Keith songs like Before They Make Me Run, because he's <laughs> on the run from authorities right. all the time. And one divide we haven't talked about yet, but that was very big in this period, is this nascent divide between mellow or soft rock and hard rock. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, it, soft rock just appealed to the mainstream of radio programmers and, and also... You know, to people like the the crowd that was running Rolling Stone, um, it it was it wasn't about bands. You know, you you didn't have your favorite Beatle all of a sudden. You you had one person, James Taylor, Carly Simon, um, um, Carol King, Cat Stevens. Uh, yeah, so you focus on that. You you didn't care who was playing bass or who the drummer was on that track you know it's just something you, you ignored and it was a way to make individuals into stars again and even some of the first generation british rockers like van morrison go that way yeah they um they wanted the focus on themselves you know that that's what a solo artist is all about and, and uh, although Van was performing with the same band. Um, he uh, he didn't call attention to who they were. And at the same time as we've got the soft rock thing, we've also got what you call the new MOR, represented by groups like the Fifth Dimension and the Carpenters. Yeah, and uh, you know even people who appeared to be rock acts like the Doobie Brothers, Steels and Crofts. Um, these were the people that were making the charts. And some of it is pretty well-crafted pop, like uh, Jimmy Webb wrote a whole album for The Fifth Dimension, wrote their first hits, and, and did some pretty elaborate arrangements and productions. So it wasn't just piffle, although if it was being rammed down your throat on Stop 24-7 in the early 70s, I imagine it got pretty annoying. Yeah, it, it was rammed down your throat because it was, you know, it was something that could be controlled and sold, which is the the banner that the record industry has always always carried. They they don't they don't want individual creative groups, you know, like like the Beatles making trouble. That they they want, you know, a guy and a band and and. They can change the band around any way they want to. Uh, meanwhile, as long as the, the genius front person keeps producing songs of genius, they're cool with it. And meanwhile, on the other side of the hard, soft divide, you've got a wave of British bands that came out of the blues scene and, and the 60s beat scene. 
you know, old timers like Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck are putting together these new combinations like Led Zeppelin and the Jeff Beck group that are bigger and louder and selling a lot more records and a lot more concert tickets than anybody has ever sold before. Yeah, but there was also the problem in that the female demographic was utterly ignored by those people. And also the, um, how do I put this? There was a there was room for parody and caricature in the works that they were doing. So you wound up with with people like Iron Maiden and uh, you know more. Well, that's well down the road. What? Iron Maiden's well down the road though, outside of our scope. I know, but it it leads to that. They yeah, were, they were preparing the ground for that. Absolutely, absolutely. But at the same time, Black Sabbath strikes an immense chord right away and in retrospect has some of the most direct commentary about the Vietnam War of any band going. Oh, yeah, they, they were, but it, they cloaked it in, in this whole gloom and doom proto goth atmosphere that um, struck a chord somehow with teenagers. And, and, one guy in this hard rock segment who didn't leave the girls out was Rod Stewart, who splits from the Jeff Beck group and joins up with the Faces, which is the remains of the small Faces after Steve Marriott left to form Humble Pie with Peter Frampton. What was different about Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood and the Faces from these other hard and heavy bands? Well, one thing is that Rod Stewart was a folky at heart. He he had been you know, a guy performing with an acoustic guitar on street corners for some of his, his career. And, um, you, know, he, you know, he always liked bands, but uh, he wasn't wed to writing his own material. He, he was cool with interpretation. Um, he just liked a, a louder sound than most folkies would would want. But there, there were, you know, heavily acoustic tracks on his records. And he also did these really interesting radical reconstructions of songs. And let's let's hear a song that he basically tore apart and started over. This is Rod Stewart on a solo album, I think backed by most of the faces, doing the Stone Street Fighting Man. Rod Stewart is saying the Rolling Stones Street Fighting Man, and there's a lot of different stories about how he came to rearrange songs so radically. Uh, sometimes he was just singing a different song. The band would be playing, say, a Little Richard number, and he would just start singing a Stones number. But whatever it was, it was very different, and it took a while to click commercially, but because of relentless touring with the Faces in the States, eventually he hits big. Yeah, his solo band... Which, which I saw him fronting the solo band at one point with people like Mickey Waller playing drums. Um, Who had been in the Jeff Beck group with them. Right. It, it, was, it was just not as hard as the faces. And 
definitely confrontation and, and uh, volume and anything that was shocked that was uh, a shock to the system uh, was very much favored by a lot of the rock audiences. And there's we've talked about the British section of the hard rock school, but there's also an American wing, which has some differences. You've got sort of some lumbering behemoths like Grand Funk Railroad out to Detroit that sort of took the mantle of the MC5 who had collapsed in a den of acrimony and drug addiction and battles with the record company and political fights. But groups like the Grand Funk Railroad and James Gang sort of segue. There's, you know, the, the Winter Brothers, Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter. And then there's groups like the Almond Brothers who are more connected to the blues tradition and the jazz tradition and, and have legit cred and sort of combined both the improvisational style of the Grateful Dead with the new heavy rock sound. Right. I was going to say, this is this is uh, very much to the taste of, of deadheads. And, or anybody um, dropping LSD and going to the Fillmore. And, and people who, who actually enjoyed jam records. The, the jamming in the Almond Brothers and James Gang was a little more structured and um, easier to follow. Yeah, I mean, they're legit virtuoso magicians and and deeply connected to the American musical tradition in a way that you know Michael Bloomfield had been, but bands like Grand Funk Railroad just were not. No, they, Grand Funk Railroad was a, um, a backing band who, um, whose front man became their producer and um, they, they really weren't an organic kind of kind of band the way the Almond Brothers were or um, you know or the James Gang who I saw innumerable times in Cincinnati as an opening band and and the Almonds also create a new genre that comes to fruition a couple over the next couple of years with bands like Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top Southern rock becomes a thing. Right. And that that was when it became more influenced by country music. And country music became more influenced by it, which is interesting. I mean, um, uh, 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 the Marshall Tucker Band is, is an important part of this equation where one of their albums was not under their name, it was under Hank Williams Jr.'s name when he decided to, you know, cast off the mantle of his ancestry and do his own thing. Yeah, and, and there's also Willie and Waylon and the whole outlaw country genre that's bubbling under, and we'll get to Nashville in a bit. But first, I want to segue back to one group that tried to square the circle and combine soft rock with hard rock. And I'm talking about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who put out an album, debut album in Atlantic that sells immensely. They played their second gig ever at Woodstock, and they're immediately big favorites, even though they have difficulties recreating their harmonies and their I mean they're basically a living room band of guys singing acoustic guitars and here they are playing stadiums so they bring in Neil Young of all people who had bitterly left Steve Stills last band Buffalo Springfield but you know Stills who's this virtuoso who played all these guitar and bass parts on the albums wanted to also be able to rock so he brings his old partner back and they succeed for a while uh, but totally tears the group apart 
Well, and also they were not quite ready for the stadium. They, they I mean, I, I know when they did their live album, Four Way Street, um, none of the vocals on that are live. They were all done in the studio because they simply could not do it on stage most of the time. Yeah, the cocaine and harmony singing and massive stadium sound speaker systems without really quality monitors. So they couldn't hear themselves. They're trying to compete with Marshall Stacks and trying to hit not really complicated harmony parts, but Graham Nash, for example, is singing in a high register because the other two guys are filling the register he would normally be in. And so, yeah, it just didn't quite work live. But they are the center of a scene in Laurel Canyon in L.A., that's going to have a big impact on the music business throughout the 70s. And two guys on the business side, David Geffen and Elliot Roberts, play an enormous role in this scene. Yeah, they, they were the manager and, and um, you know, the, the label connection for a lot of these people. And uh, they, they basically were the go-to guys for talent from Los Angeles. And they lock up a monopoly on people like Linda Ronstadt and her backing group, which includes a couple of guys named Glenn Fry and Don Henley who go on to bigger things. Yeah, I mean, they knew that she had to have a regular dancing. This is the problem with the solo artist. You know, it's the solo person, this singer, this person who's in the spotlight, and, you know, these guys operating machinery in the back. And, um, you know, everybody wants to work with the same guys every night, but who are they? And um, the the Linda's backup group began to have an identity of its own, and, and they wound up playing together and, and writing songs, some of which went to her. Yeah, and, 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 do, and everybody makes idea. sorry, everybody what? makes mountains of money in this period? Well, not everybody, but a lot of people. Well, there was a, a lot of money floating around the, the music business. And there's also sort of a restoration of the songwriter niche, even though Carol King, you know, one of the great behind the scenes songwriters of the early sixties in partnership with Gary Goffin goes on to become a solo front woman in her own with her tapestry album and sells a gazillion records. But people like Laura Nairo take the opposite track, retreat from public performance and write big pop songs. And, and there's Laura Nairo, Harry Nilsson, Randy Newman, and Jimmy Webb, who we already mentioned. Yeah, that is true. A lot of those people were not organic performers, you know, guys who stepped out of the front of a band to go solo. I mean, Randy Newman was always solo. He, he was writing contract. He was a contract songwriter. Um, and uh, the first Randy Newman songs people heard were um, on uh, other people's records. Yeah, people like Three Dog Night, who had number one hits with Newman and Nilsson songs. And then Nilsson has number ones with a Newman song, or at least has a whole album of Newman songs, and has a number one with a Fred Neal song. Correction, but... One guy who's a songwriter who does emerge as a performer, and even though he's from England, he really breaks free in L.A., and I'm talking about Elton John. Well, Elton John was was pretty much pre-programmed to um, hit the United States 
um, he was just one of a number of struggling songwriters. But when he got signed to uh, an MCA subsidiary, the big hype was his debut performance at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, where his, his PR man hired an English double-decker bus to go down Sunset Boulevard, and, and uh, there was much hype in the press. And um, it was, you know, I, actually, it's, it's embarrassing. I was supposed to discover him. And, uh, <laughs> you let him get away. Well, I, I took the record home, and I listened to it, I went, eh, not so good. But then my ears weren't tuned towards pop music. I, I wanted something else that he was obviously not delivering. Also, his lyrics were like, I don't know, they, they didn't mean anything. Not in yeah. the way that Bob Dole didn't mean anything. They really did not mean anything. They showed no emotional depth. And those were co-written by Bernie Taupin, and they had an unusual practice of Taupin writing the lyrics on paper and Elton John putting the music to him. And yeah, like you say, that there's always been a weird clunky feeling to those lyrics. Uh, Jimmy Webb has that pattern as well, where some of those songs, you know, there are songs like Wichita Lineman, which is this acknowledged masterpiece where people are writing entire books about that one song. And then there are songs like MacArthur Park, where I've spent my entire life going, what the hell is going on with this song? And why is Waylon Jennings singing it? Yeah, I, I don't know what, I mean, MacArthur Park has a pleasing melody. One thing you always got to say about Jimmy Webb is <clears throat> he not only wrote lyrics, but he, he wrote good melodies. And Laura Nero, the same thing with her. I mean, her lyrics were weird, but um, she was able to carry them off with her melodies and, and the fact that they could be arranged by other people into hits. And Elton John did much the same thing for Bernie Taupin. And another subtext of Elton John, which he wasn't open about at the time, but it's later been revealed that he was bisexual or probably predominantly homosexual. But other people are kind of out and proud. We've had the Stonewall riots in 69. And in New York in particular, there's two... There's a disco scene that's emerging. A DJ named David Mancuso starts having house parties. And this is actually a major break. This is the first time that discos, which originally meant just a club where they played records rather than having a band, rather than a genre of music. But this is where the genre of music starts to take form. And it's directed by the guy at the turntable, who now sort of takes over the old Paul Whiteman or Bob Wills role of, of the band leader who watches the crowd and sees what they're dancing to and keeps them moving. Right. That's, it, was a, and it was also a, a place where marginalized people, predominantly gay men, uh, could go and have their own scene. You know, you, you, if you're uncomfortable with the fact that most of the people in the house are gay, well, then don't come. That was the, the message. And uh, the, the dance scene, there were a number of things about it that, that, um, that made it very much different. Not only the type of people who were going, but the fact that there was no alcohol served, um, that there were other other drugs um, that were called smart drugs that people took, and, and it energized them, and it was sort of like speed. It kept them dancing for hours, 
So it was pretty pretty taxing to be a DJ at those those dances because you had to spend a lot of time. You you had to watch the crowd and judge your programming by it, but you also had to um, do it for a long time. And there's also a, a scene at the Continental Baths, which is uh, pretty hard to describe from the 21st century. But in the early 70s, there was clubs where m- mainly men paid to go in, but they also had heterosexual clubs as well and just had sex in the clubs. And at one of these bathhouses, they called it, there's not a DJ. Instead, you've got Bette Midler with Barry Manilow on, on piano going way back in time. Right. Performing songs from the 50s all the way back to the 30s and um, providing a, a sort of new aesthetic for pop music uh, or a new old aesthetic for pop music. And um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say um, it was considered a little campy for her to do 50s hits, you know, but um, also going back to Broadway musicals and stuff, that was you know, unheard of. There's another artist that's heavily hyped around this time because of his status as an out homosexual. And I'm talking about Joe Bryath, who's at the time was just seen as a big hype and a flop. And the homophobia was raging at the time. But now in retrospect, a lot of people look back on him as a pioneer. Well, I don't know. His music wasn't all that good. That's... <laughs> <laughs> the big make- problem with him was, you know, who cares what he does in bed? You don't want to sit through three minutes of a Joe Bryant song. And and that's a fair enough criticism, although some people do really like this stuff, and it's hard to separate the identity politics from uh, the music, perhaps. But another thing that's going on that connects rock to Broadway and musicals is what you call Jesus Rock. And two guys from Britain, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, write a rock opera that ends up being the future of Broadway. Well, to some extent. I mean, I guess I guess Andrew Lloyd Webber is the future of Broadway in that he brought a kind of rock consciousness to the musical theater uh, of the time. But um, Jesus Christ Superstar was immensely popular in the United States because it was sort of making Sunday school hip. And um, of course they went and sued everybody who tried to mount a a stage production of it, you know, like at your church drama group or something, um, because they were trying to put together a touring company of, of this with, you know, soloists singing the songs, the same soloist every night. And, um, you know, they, they didn't want a million different touring companies out there. So uh, there, there you go, Andrew Lloyd Webber suing somebody's Presbyterian church drama class. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're used to that kind of thing, thanks to Disney and, and all the content monopolies. But let's hear a little bit of Jesus Christ Superstar, which the original cast recording featured Ian Gillian of Deep Purple on vocals and Joe Cocker's Grease Band backing up. So it had some rock uh, legitimacy. And it's hard to pick. There's so many just weird, crazy songs on this. But I've got to go, uh, I think, with Judas's number, Damned for All Time, Blood Money, featuring Judas. Why are we the puppets? Why are we the ones who see the sad solution? No one must be done. I 
no thought at all about my own reward. I really didn't come here of my own accord. Just don't say I'm damned for all time. Cut the protesting, forget the excuses. We want information, get up off the floor. We have the papers. We and that was damned for all time from Jesus Christ Superstar by uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, which was an unlikely hit and ended up becoming a stage play and starting the Lloyd Webber machine that trundles on uh, through the decades. They quickly followed up with uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And, you know, 20 years later, you got cats. Meanwhile, in England, there's a very different scene going on. It's sort of related to some of the things we've been talking to talking about. But England's a very different country, much smaller, and it's a, it's got a heavy TV rock and roll connection that we don't have in the States. Right. The weekend starts here, the top of the pops, um, which was a, initially a show where hit makers came on and, and um, performed their new record. And people like David Bowie make an enormous impact. Yeah, I mean, people who um, who were, you know, who who were. Um, oh, I lost what I was trying to think. <laughs> Flamboyant. Uh, what? Flamboyant. Yeah, there was a there was a vis- You had to have a visual element uh, in your act all of a sudden, which was never, you know, a, a problem. I mean, closest we had to that back then was. The idea of, um, you know, the Beatles all wearing matching suits. But um, suddenly, yeah, you you really did have to have an act uh, if you were going to be on television. And you wanted to be on television because Top of the Pops meant you were on the Top of the Pops. And people like T-Rex put on a little eyeshadow and boom, they're superstars. Well, it was it was that the they were more visible. There was nobody else on the program with eyeshadow except the, whoever the girl presenter was that week. And um, th- this kind of it, it was much easier to put on eyeshadow than to actually be gay in public uh, and try to make it as a pop star, as you know, a lot of these these people discovered. But David Bowie jumps in front of this trend, and Bowie's a guy who's been making records since 1964, Mark Boland and T-Rex as well, and they've both shifted chameleon-like through styles without clicking. Bowie has a hit single in 69 uh, with Major Tom, but in the early 70s, he suddenly dramatically escalates his ability as a songwriter. He partners with Mick Ronson, the brilliant guitarist and arranger, and puts out a string of albums like Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust that clearly established him as the king of British rock at the time. Yeah, but only British. And and that was a big problem. And how do you market this guy who um, has flowing long hair and wears dresses to his interviews. You know, it was like, that was a hard one for America to digest. 
But they pressed through, and Tony Visconti and Main Man Management spent a lot of RCA's money uh, hyping David Bowie and, and putting him in limos and getting him in front of interviewers and on radio stations and playing big halls that they can't fill. But eventually it does work, and Bowie has this weird ability to bring others along in his wake, producing hit records for people as unlikely as Lou Reed and Mott the Hoople. Right. Well, you know, he, he was very prolific at that point. He he liked he liked Mott the Hoople. I, I have some insight into this. I mean, he was a fan of the bands and he couldn't figure out why they weren't making it. So he wrote them a song just as they got dropped from Island <clears throat> excuse me, Island Records. And uh, he wrote them a song and immediately CBS signed them because, well, you know, it's a band that David Bowie is writing songs for. So he got this uh, this odd bit of social commentary, all the young dudes, and turned it into a hit. And does the same and does the same with Lou Reed's Transformer, although he can't work his magic with Iggy and the Stooges. No, well, Iggy was sort of out of control and, and not given to discipline in the recording studio, let's put it that way. <laughs> or so, on the stage. Right. And there's another aspect of the British scene that we've skipped over, which is the prog rock scene, which sort of set glam up because prog is a bunch of deafy guys without visual appeal. Bands like Pink Floyd that after the departure of their original founder, Sid Barrett, became almost deliberately anonymous, playing in front of big slideshows and letting the, the lights, not they didn't have lasers yet, but they, they had big lights and big sound. And groups like Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull and Yes are really successful for a while, particularly in the States. Right. They, they, um, they fit into the FM format very nicely because they and yet they weren't jam bands they weren't doing a lot of improvisation instrumental work um that it was just something that uh, fit into the radio thing and played up the rock as art myth again yet pink floyd eventually learns how to write songs without sid barrett and scores an enormous decades lasting hit with dark side of the moon that is a complete mystery to me i, I it's not a very distinguished record um, <laughs> the, song, the songwriting is clunky the um, there's not much in the way of instrumental virtuosity but it was the right record at the right time and, and it, by god they they got it so yeah, yeah. stay on the track longer than any album has ever stayed I think it's still as of the record. I, I was always sort of baffled by Pink Floyd too, but as a friend of mine, and you know, as a Gen Xer, everybody liked Pink Floyd. And once I was expressing I didn't, you know, like them very much, I did eventually come around on Dark Side of the Moon uh, and Wish You Were Here. But at the time, it was baffling to me. And my friend, I was like, "Well, what do you listen to when you're dropping acid?" <laughs> and so that was <laughs> it became sort of de rigueur. And meanwhile, the original acid head bands from San Francisco are a lot of them are falling apart. Sly and the family stone have risen to the top of the charts, but then sort of turned on their audience with there's a riot going on credence Clearwater revival, which was never a, a member of the scene. They never played the Fillmore, or the Avalon. They weren't into long jams, but they become one of the biggest and best uh, top 10 single artists of the era and then fall apart. 
Yeah, yeah, that one was was hard to figure. But then they weren't. You know, the thing about Credence was not only were they not from the psychedelic ballroom scene, not only were they writing pop records, which was what got them on the charts, but they, they weren't playing the pop game. They, you know, there wasn't a question of who's your favorite Credence or anything. You know, they were they were just sort of anomalies who happened to show up in San Francisco because that's where they grew up. And had a knack for writing pretty brilliant three-chord, four-chord pop rock songs that really hit the spot at the time. And meanwhile, but, the great... Nobody else was doing that. Yeah, they, they they were... Supposedly, they were Brian Jones's last ever favorite band. He was very excited <laughs> about Proud Mary right before he died. Uh, I think he liked the resemblance John Fogarty had to him as well. But let's uh, hear one more song and talk about the last of the... Well, there's two more San Francisco bands I want to talk about, but let's hear a little bit of Grateful Dead and the change that they took. And here's the Grateful Dead doing Friend of the Devil. And that was The Grateful Dead doing Friend of the Devil off their Working Man's Dead album. And they put out a pair of albums around this time, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, that it's almost the sound of, of Jack Smith at Warner Brothers Records saying, yeehaw, because this band that had spent fortunes in the studio trying to make psychedelic masterpieces, put out a live double album, none of which had really clicked commercially, suddenly justified their pay by producing these country rock pop songs, short, three-minute, catchy, singable. Right. That, that was that was their turn of direction to see if they couldn't find a way to, I don't know, to... to uh, mediate between what they were doing live and what they were listening to and, and the kind of songs they were writing. Some of those songs on those albums actually were able to be turned into the stereotypical long jam of the of the Grateful Dead. And, um, and yet they were short enough to play on the radio and it didn't sound like anybody else. That was the Grateful Dead all of a sudden. And, and meanwhile, Jefferson Airplane, who had been their peer at the forefront, actually rocketed way ahead of them uh, in 67 with massive commercial success. They fall apart and split into two bands, one of which is called Hot Tuna because their original title, Hot Shit, couldn't uh, be approved by the record companies. And the other faction of the band becomes Jefferson Starship rather than Airplane. Yeah, I mean... The rhythm section just wanted to jam blues, and, and um, that's what they did, you know, hot tuna. But Paul Kantner and Grace Slick not only became a couple, but started delving into all this weird science fiction-y crap, and, and also fake politics, which had, they had done a bit with um, with the airplane, you know, volunteers and all that, <clears throat> trying to partake of the zeitgeist, the political zeitgeist of the time, and um, 
actually nobody was buying it, but nobody was not buying it either. People were just passively consuming it, so they thought they could get away with it. But the Jefferson Starship really did prove to be a bridge too far in terms of testing their um, their audiences. I don't know, their patience, perhaps, is the word. That all came because RCA gave them a record label called Grunt and gave them each a million dollars a piece to, like, go ahead, kids, go play with it. And they did, you know, they, they put out some really terrible records on Grunt, I got to say. Baron von Tollbooth and the Chrome Nun. I mean, what was that all about? This sort of weird hippie fascism that they were playing with. And don't forget Grace Slick's immortal manhole record. I've been trying to, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that, that a band that had such an impact in the 60s, as a Gen Xer, they definitely didn't hold their power. And the Jefferson Starship was out there throughout the 70s and 80s on AOR radio and FM radio not going away and made it impossible you know, for younger people to appreciate their legacy. Unlike The Doors, where Jim Morrison was safely dead and still gorgeous and 27 years old forever, uh, you know, Grace Slick kept aging and, and it really hurt their long-term record sales. And The Dead, meanwhile, have their gold albums, do some big tours, but they're they kill a movie documentary that's being produced around them and basically make a conscious choice to retreat from the charts and just focus solely on their cult and their live touring. Yeah, well, it's a way to make money. Good. <laughs> it was. The whole idea, you know, I mean, one thing is a band has to be a band. There has to be a solid group of individuals working together and breaking up bands by making somebody into a solo star really was usually musically not not viable that some of these people only could do what they do because they had other people in the same group working with them and and one form of music that's particularly amenable to collaboration is pop rock and the, the tradition of the Beatles with Lennon McCartney. And there's a few people trying to carry that torch forward, particularly one group of people out of Cleveland, Eric Carmen and the Raspberries that do have some hits and another more talented group in Memphis that does not click. Oh yeah. You're talking about big star. Of course. Alex Chilton had been hit big with the box tops, but he goes back and puts together a new group and it doesn't work out. It works out great aesthetically, but not commercially. Well, yeah, they, they were ahead of their times in a lot of ways, not only with their avant-garde pop, but also learning how to make the records themselves, learning how to make complex pop records by themselves because the band formed because they were messing around in the studio after hours. And had almost unlimited studio time at Arden Studios, but they have a deal with a subsidiary of Stax Records, and they get caught in the undertow of Stax Records' war with Columbia, who had CBS, who had purchased them. Right. This is the period where Stax is falling apart, and it was a it was an unfortunate thing to be signed to Stax because you weren't going to really be getting anywhere, uh, no matter who you were. And that's, and that's what happened to, to the box tops. 
I mean, big star. Yeah. And oh, and yeah. Chris Bell, who's the Paul McCartney to Alex Chilton's John Lennon, can't handle it at all and leaves the group and dies tragically in a car wreck at 1977. He, he was the guy who wanted to be a Beatle. He, he honestly believed that he was born to be a Beatle. And um, that was the reason he was in the music business. And and it made some great records, but it didn't work out for him and, and died a tragic death. Meanwhile, there's sort of a weird America school of music going on. I'm talking about groups like Blue Oyster Cult, Steely Dan, and Little Feet, who are very eccentric yet enjoy some commercial success. Well, some, yeah. The, the, um, the most conventional of those, which would, would have been um, Steely Dan and Blue Oyster Cult, they're working known pop structures, so um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't too difficult for them to uh, to have hits once they got heard. And Blue Oyster Cult has hits too, and yet they're a completely eccentric band. They were actually a, a metal band with um, a science fiction bent and a couple of good lyricists. I mean. Richard Meltzer wrote some songs for them. Uh, Patti Smith did. And they also learned early on that one way to get on the radio is to write songs about rock and roll, which is like a horrible hack kind of thing to do. But they did, you know, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll. Of course, that's going to get on the radio. It's a a great image. And um, the song was, you know, it was... It was pretty conventional. And artists like Ray Davies of the Kinks and and Foreigner are later going to tap that same mind when they're needing hits. But one last thing I want to cover before we wrap this episode is this quest for a new Dylan. Like Bob Dylan had been one of the most influential artists of the 60s, had basically retreated uh, into obscurity in the early 70s. And there's a search and people like John Prine and Arlo Guthrie are floated as potential successors, but it's a guy from New Jersey that really takes the mantle on in a way. Well, it was because he was very ambitious. He was also, he also had a great lot of experience with a band, his own band. So when Bruce Springsteen auditioned for John Hammond at uh, Columbia Records, they knew what they were listening to. And they, they knew that once they, once they went out and heard the band that he was fronting, they knew they could turn this into a commercial success. It took them a while, but that wasn't entirely Springsteen's fault. Yeah, the first album is maybe too acoustic, and they're trying to market him as a new Dylan, but John Landau gets a hold of him. And unlike the commercial disaster the MC5 faced uh, when working with Landau, Bruce Springsteen and Landau click. Right. They, and it was the right time, too. There was a need. I mean, the industry was right for a change. There was a need for a new Dylan, a new face writing songs that reflected teenage reality. And Springsteen's whole thing about, you know, loners driving their cars around in the suburban wilderness, that, that, really, that really hit the, hit the spot of the time. 
Cool. And there's a couple more things in this chapter that we didn't have time to get to, and we'll get to them next time. I'm talking about what's going on in Nashville with the Countrypolitan sound, and also what's going on in Philadelphia, where a new generation of producers, Gamble and Huff, segue soul into disco that's going to dominate the rest of the 70s. So, Ed, thanks for coming back, and we'll talk to you next time. Great. See you then. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about the bloating of the music business in the early 70s and the feeling that everyone was waiting on something to happen. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.